Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. This is the second part of a series of episodes on sex and sexuality in the Victorian era. They are designed as an interlinked series, so please make sure you have listened to the previous episode. The last episode was certainly a bit like Marmite for many listeners. As I warned, it had some very graphic content, which I know some listeners hated. Other listeners really loved it and felt it humanised the Victorians. I had an interesting comment on the website from Thomas Phillips about episode 43. Quote, I feel compelled to comment favourably on episode 43 about Victorian moors and sex habits, if only because I'm sure some will take to their fainting couches when they listen to it, though they were duly warned ahead of time. Thank you, Mr. Fernandez Packham, for this blast of refreshing cool air, driving away the years of accumulated ignorance and condescension regarding the Victorians and sex. Moors change, but people do not, and your sane, sensible attitude and relaxed acceptance of this crucial aspect of human nature and experience is very welcome. Bravo. The Victorians, in short, were a lot like you and me, but without the benefit of enlightened sex education or birth control. End quote. I'm really glad you liked the episode. Thomas has also just become a patron and joins the ranks of the Hohortoffs. Welcome and thank you. I've also had a lovely listener review from KRRB1135 USA, five star, quote, I love this podcast. I will admit I had to get used to the narrator's voice becoming Queen Victoria, but I give him an A all the way round. He's honest and funny and knows his stuff, end quote. Oh, thank you. For those of you following on the Facebook group, the podcast has a new mascot, a yellow rubber duck in the shape of Queen Victoria. Thank you to James Linus for picking the winning name, Queen Quactoria, Empress of Bath. Let's hope she brings us good luck. Now, at the very heart of Victorian sexual relationships are the great keystones of Victorian society, religion, class and accepted behaviour. Victorian society in England was hierarchical and religious. Conduct and society was expected to have a religious basis, so gender relations and sex were shaped with hefty doses of biblical influence. The basis of gender relations in the Christian Bible essentially traces itself from Adam and Eve. Adam is created by God first. He is then lonely and incomplete, so God fashions Eve. From him. As William Alcott said in his 1837 book, the young wife or duties of a woman in the marriage relation. Wrote, there was a time in the history of our world when women did not exist. Man was not only alone without a companion, but destitute of helpmeet, an assistant. In these circumstances, almighty power came forth, and as a proceeding for this very purpose, that modified and in some respects improved form of humanity, to which was afterwards given the name of woman and presented her to man. 
she was to be man's assistant. End quote. Genesis also states the purpose of man and woman is to go forth and be fruitful and multiply so they can rule over the world on behalf of the Lord. That pretty much sums up a core view at the heart of Victorian gender relations, but it is a fairly narrow view. In the text, Eve is created specifically as a helper or assistant, not a servant or slave. Genesis does show us that even in ancient times, people were clearly linking sex with pregnancy. They might not know the mechanism or the specifics of conception, but any Victorian who read the Bible would know that the men and women in it had a lot of sex, which was how babies were made. Cover to cover, the Bible has enormous amounts of sex and violence, which is why many Victorians were careful about what Bible passages were read to young ears. The real problem is that the Bible has lots of ambiguity when it comes to sexual morality. Far from saying sex is wrong, it often says it is a very good thing and you should enjoy it, provided it is with your wife or your slaves or captured female prisoners of the nation of Israel. Adultery is pretty much condemned. There are some very vague passages, like Ephesians 5.3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. End quote. Remember that impurity will include eating the wrong things, or failing to cleanse yourself properly before performing rituals to the Lord, and much more. Oh, and a little problematically for some Victorian Christians, the original version was talking about the Jewish tribes, who were the chosen, not everyone else. Sexual immorality is not well defined, nor is it clear whatever Galatians 5.19 means when it says, quote, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, end quote. Sorry, but that's not actually obvious at all. What is debauchery? Having sex with your willing slave or raping your lawful wife? If you asked one of the Old Testament kings or prophets if a man could rape his wife, he might not have even understood the question, and not just because your ancient Hebrew is worse than mine. Rape within marriage remained legal for a disturbingly long period of history. How do verses like that sit with verses like this one? Ephesians 5.33, quote, However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband, end quote. Or this one from Proverbs 5.15-19, quote, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. End quote. The husband and wife were supposed to be one flesh, united for the Lord. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply 
To some Victorian theologians, it seemed obvious that sex was therefore for the conception of children only. Many others pointed out that lust and adultery only wrong because they were outside marriage. A husband and wife could and should indulge themselves. Most Victorian marriage manuals emphasised that just because the woman was obeying, it didn't give the husband a free pass to order her around. He was expected not to ask her to do things that were immoral, illegal, broke religious strictures, or threatened their social standing. He was frequently reminded that if he wanted his wife to do certain things, he had to then support it. For instance, if he told his wife to present his children to him in his study after work for tea and a catch-up, then he had to be in that study on time, every time. Otherwise, he was to blame for ruining the routines he was expecting from his wife and hence couldn't complain if she got cross with him or refused to continue. He was given a wider latitude to be sensual and free in society, but it meant he got less default respect and suffered higher consequences for failure. Let's also remember a lot of the prophets did a lot of morally questionable begetting. Take the tragedy of Lot. He is warned to leave Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord destroys it, because he is such a righteous man. He takes his daughters off, but his wife is turned to a pillar of salt for disobeying the Lord and looking back at the city as they were leaving. Lot lives in a cave in the hills. The daughters eventually feel lonely, stuck in the cave with just their father, and they want children. So they rape their father on two nights running. He is too drunk to consent to either encounter. They have sex with him anyway and become pregnant. Be honest, if you were a Victorian governess, would you be reading that passage to the little girl you were looking after? Or would you go with one of the nice ones about the lambs? I'm not sure what the moral message is that we are supposed to get from the story of Lot, but it is just one example of how much sex is actually in the Bible, and much of it is deeply morally ambivalent. There's also the problem that a large number of the verses are written by people who even on their own terms have absolutely no claim of knowing what God said, wanted or commanded. They were hundreds of years distant with no claim of speaking directly to God. Many Victorians were literalists when it came to the Bible, but an increasing number weren't. They could write off some of the more troubling Old Testament passages as being out of date and just stick to the New Testament. Crucially, we don't get details from Jesus about sex and the impact of the New Covenant on sexuality, nor does the Bible detail Jesus' sex life. Certainly, there is nothing in the accepted King James Bible about Jesus having married or having sex. So the Victorians would have had to go on their best instincts and the local sermons. On top of that, Christian sexual morality was deeply influenced by St Paul, especially his famous letter to the Corinthians. This is a hugely famous issue and one that is rather hard to understand properly, especially as the original was probably a copy of a letter responding to another letter, which was then translated 
and retranslated till it came to the King James Bible version. The King James Bible was the Bible most Victorians would have read and followed, but despite its lovely language, it is a very problematic translation in many ways. It seems that many readers felt St Paul was outright saying sex was wrong, but others feel better translations show he was saying people should have sex with their married partners and not withhold sex for long periods or become celibate, no matter how pious they felt, since it risked adultery. He also really, really didn't like prostitutes. The Bible couldn't resolve the issue in a straightforward way then, but it did make it clear that married people should be having sex and having children. Nor did being one of the non-conformist Christian groups in Victorian times mean more liberal views on sex. As Professor Sir Richard Evans notes in one of his lectures, quote, Evangelical preachers denounced drunkenness and advocated total abstinence, along with the abandonment of cruel and violent sports, gambling, riotous behaviour and sexual indulgence, end quote. Being less morally permissive was a way for non-conformists to mark themselves as better than the established Church of England and fight back against its constant harrying. Given that Victorian Britain was religious in ways that go beyond all but the most extremist religious societies today, Christian morality was seen as God's universal morality. Anything not lining up with it was by definition evil. That might seem to wrap things up. Victorians were religious and they knew they should be having sex once they were married, saving themselves for the event and not having sex with strangers, any gay sex. But sex with drunken fathers might be okay under some circumstances. But there were some huge problems. As we saw last episode, Victorians and especially Victorian teens were going to have sex, and in some cases were willing to take enormous risks, or at least think about enormous risk-taking sex whilst masturbating. Risks could include unprotected sex on multiple occasions, frequently behind the backs of other family members or household staff, in rented rooms, and perhaps borrowed money. Besides the risk of pregnancy or disease, the social consequences would have been disastrous. A boy would potentially have risked disinheritance and perhaps being forced to leave home or join the army. A girl risked pregnancy or having her name disgraced, perhaps resulting in a near banishment to older relatives and the dreaded spinsterhood. Any female partner could have sued the family and claimed the male had promised her marriage so she was entitled to financial damages if he didn't marry her. For servants, there were the added problems, especially with the enormous power imbalances. A servant girl could have been fired without a future reference. A male servant getting another servant pregnant would be fired, but God forbid he got one of the female employers pregnant, especially if she was married. Anyone familiar with teenagers will know that this is the age when the sex drive develops. And from an evolutionary perspective, it is the best time 
for people to have babies. Grow a beard, grow some boobs, have sex, have a baby before you get trampled on by a woolly mammoth. Except that clearly has problems. Teenage decision making isn't great for a start. Teenage girls are notoriously fussy and teenage boys are notoriously unproven in areas that might attract a teenage cave girl, such as being able to land a spear on target every time or knowing how to catch salmon or build a quality raft, since those are skills that need years of practice. So those teenage cave girls went for the 30-year-old guys with their own caves, whilst a teenage cave boy was left with acne and a sense that if they could just get this rock into a round shape, they would finally be going places. Okay, I'm making light of things. Biologically speaking, humans should be reproducing young, and young fertile females prefer slightly older proven males with high risk-taking traits. If society requires people to marry before they reproduce, then makes divorce nearly impossible, then there's a lot of pressure on people to find the right partner fast. Some of the traits that attract people to each other early in relationships are positively bad traits for lifelong marriages. The Victorians were well aware of the serious problems of choosing a husband or wife, and there was an explosion of self-help books to guide people. A topic I promise you we will look at in great detail on another occasion. If people choose only the most successful partners and leave large chunks of the population without the relationships or sex they want, then without methods for the society to resolve the tensions caused, well, typically you end up with lots of sexually frustrated young males who feel that the handsome rich males in society are not only hogging all the mammoth steaks, but also all the cute cave girls too. What do we want? Access to females of a comparable age and social status might not be the most memorable cry for revolution, but societies with large numbers of young, underemployed males tend to experience drastic social conflict, such as in China, in the Nian Rebellion of 1851 to 1863, with a typically staggering death toll of the large-scale Chinese rebellions. Rwanda Rwanda also experienced dramatic social conflict, as did many of the countries involved in the Arab Spring. Whether that is fair or right is often besides the point. It is all very well saying men should just get over it as sex isn't that important, but in reality people don't just get over feelings because it is inconvenient for someone else. It is a potential catalyst for civil unrest. The cause can be either large-scale gender inequality or just more males due to various mortality causes or policy decisions. But the uncomfortable truth is that excess male populations in a society tend to lead to violence. As Robert Wright said, quote, An unmarried man between 24 and 35 years of age is about three times as likely to murder another male as is a married man the same age. Some of this difference no doubt reflects the kinds of men that do and don't get married to begin with, but a good part of the difference 
may lie in the pacifying effect of marriage. Murder isn't the only thing that unpacified men are more likely to do. He is more likely to incur various risks, committing robbery, for example, to gain the resources that may attract women. He is more likely to rape, abuse of drugs and alcohol, compound the problem by further diminishing his chances of ever earning enough money to attract women by legitimate means, end quote. Remember, though, that humans are complex and that much of this goes on at a less than conscious level. Some historians and sociologists have suggested the best ways to deal with excess males who have few prospects of jobs or sexual relationships is to have them do dangerous government projects with high mortality rates or to encourage them to emigrate or join the army or just establish an authoritarian regime to deal firmly with the problem. My suggestion though is that anyone applying the term excess human beings anywhere except the queue for a morning coffee is going to end up in some morally unpleasant places. The Victorians did at least have an option for young men without prospects, the empire. The British army in particular essentially forbade anyone below the rank of major from getting married except for a small number of establishment wives. Given the low salary of a young ensign, That was pretty much for the best. Men could be sent off in the civil service for years, far away from marriageable women, whilst many Victorians on the imperial frontiers were religious fanatics. Others gleefully took the opportunity to have as much sex as possible with local women from cultures that certainly didn't have the same sexual hang-ups as the Victorian Christians much to the distress of some worthies back in the United Kingdom. The booming Anglo-Indian community is a particularly fascinating example. Some societies get round gender imbalances by banning polygamy, restricting sex outside marriage, or a very popular expedient is arranging marriages. That cuts out all the painful how-to-meet-people-these-days and do-they-like-each-other questions. I'm not getting into the arranged marriage debate. Just be aware that arranged marriage was not a common practice in Victorian England, even for royalty, although pressure from relatives and circumstances could come close. Victoria chose Albert because she fell in love with him. Not only that, but she really liked having sex with him, which is not surprising because women do like sex quite a lot as long as they like the partner and have the kind of foreplay they enjoy. Historically, there have been periods of history in Europe where women were thought to like sex more than men. If the Madonna was the supposed ideal for European art, Eve as the licentious temptress, or Aphrodite as the sensual goddess, were never far behind. Any movements in the 19th century to move women to a cultural position of being free of sexual desire, were flying against the physical reality and the historical traditions. This push to desexualizing women, and she had deeper historical roots than the Victorians though. It had some traces of Puritanism, but really developed both from 
the woman as property of the husband and the woman as the guardian of the domestic stability in the 18th century. From there, strains of the evangelical movements crept in, saying that women were not merely weaker than men with less sexual desire, but they were without sexual desire. And any kind of sexual desire was itself somehow abhorrent. This can be seen as a tool of repression, but it's more complex. For evangelicals, leaving aside their sincere beliefs, the removal of women from a sexual life elevated the woman and let the evangelicals tell women they were therefore obviously more religious, pious and godly. According to Nancy Cote in her journal article Passionless, an interpretation of Victorian sexual ideology, 1790-1850, quote, replacing sexual with moral motives and determinants, the ideology of passionlessness favoured women's power and self-respect. It reversed the tradition of Christian mistrust based on women's sexual treacherousness. It elevated women above the weakness of animal nature, stressing instead that they were formed for exalted purity, felicity and glory. End quote. This had a neat way of empowering women since the flip side of the coin was that it meant men's sex drives were also automatically ungodly. If godly women determined what was and wasn't virtuous, then men were sometimes described as beastly. It was a hugely effective way of gatekeeping people's sexuality, even if they didn't actually attend the church themselves. It was curiously both patriarchally repressive, but also highly misandrist and sexist to men at the same time. For some people, it was fine. For others, it was torture. Of course, gatekeeping anyone's sexuality is hugely damaging to individuals and society. It did allow a level of social control and spread out marriage across the population rather than concentrating sexual success in a small number of attractive people. Although at the cost of a stifling sexual morality code. But how much of this was just a social cloak that was thrown on or off at will? If the pearl from last week was anything to go by, then it was ignored a lot. If the literature of polite society was the guide, then people were basically respectable and sex was barely spoken of. Yet clearly in Dickens and many others, unmarried women do get pregnant. Misfortunes or accidents or people eloping happen. Dickens wrote of milliners, seamstresses and dressmakers as euphemisms for prostitution from his real life knowledge as picked up by Sir Terry Pratchett. We know the dressmaker's shop was a popular pickup point of prostitutes and clients. His books are full of fallen women. After all, Dickens' personal life was troubled and his treatment of his wife when he began his affair with young actress Ellen Ternan was appalling. Even many of his closest friends were horrified by his behaviour. The lives of many of the famous Victorians were different from this idealised state of blissful marriage and sex only for procreation. There's also the fact 
that many women don't want to be sexless angels on pedestals. They wanted fun, sex, and sometimes babies. Whilst marrying young had problems, leaving it too long was another risk for many Victorians, not just because you might get left on the shelf or find one of the many easy ways to drop dead in the Victorian era, but as one marriage manual pointed out, people who stayed single for too long became too set in their ways to marry and unwilling to compromise their habits, which is unfortunately necessary for long-term relationships. Today, we have a strange view of a relationship where neither partner is supposed to change and should maintain their independence. Yet at the same time, they are supposed to sacrifice for the other person and be their lover, friend, confidant, cheerleader, teacher, counsellor, homemaker or breadwinner, entertainer, and give them the perfect balance between space, excitement and attention. Suddenly, the Victorian man, spending a few hours in the study whilst his wife retires to drink tea and paint, seems far less pressured, despite the gender clichés. No Victorian husband or Victorian wife was expected to cover the range of roles we seem to expect modern partners to cover. What would the wedding night be like then? Let's talk about the most famous wedding nights we know of. Queen Victoria kindly described it in her diary. Then we will talk about the legendary wedding night of John Ruskin. Victoria's diary notes on her wedding night, quote, I never, never spent such an evening. My dearest Albert sat on a footstool by my side and his excess love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness. I could never have hoped to felt before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. End quote. Given how many children they had, they certainly managed to figure out exactly how sex worked. At one point, when a doctor advised her not to have more children, she said rather plaintively, quote, What, doctor? No more fun in bed. End quote. Before you ask, Yes, we do know that Albert often went commando, as I've said in previous podcasts, but the myth about him having the original Prince Albert is just that. The myth seems to have started when body piercer Jim Ward was trying to popularise penis rings in the 1970s. He turned to his friend Doug Malloy, who wrote a pamphlet, which included the story about Prince Albert having such an enormous penis that he needed the ring to attach to his breeches to keep it pointing down the right way. It is almost certainly a complete fabrication, but there is some limited evidence that Victorian dressing rings for the penis were a real thing. However, most are from numerous unsourced internet Amazing Facts articles, most of which reference each other as sources and make vague references to Beau Brummel or tight trousers. Now, let's talk about John Ruskin, because his wedding night is the cliché that people imagine all Victorian wedding nights were like. 
I'm not going into the whole of John Ruskin's life or the Raphaelites, as they are getting their own series later. Ruskin was a talented art writer, critic, collector, and a good artist in his own right. He was a polymath and deeply interested in the connection to art, meteorology, nature, truth, conservation, the need for creativity at work, support for the poor, the environmental impact of industry, and what we would call the built environment. He's sometimes seen as a precursor of the modern green and socialist movements. He was an extraordinarily important figure in 19th century cultural history, but unfortunately it is all overshadowed these days by that wedding night, especially if you've seen the recent movie. He married the beautiful Euphemia Gray, known as Effie. He was 29, she was 19, and had known her since childhood. He had even stood up to his parents and insisted on marrying her when they objected, which was astonishing, given he mostly still seemed to have his umbilical cord attached. They married, and on their wedding night, he took her to the bedroom. Effie had received no sexual education whatsoever, and her mother had simply told her to follow her husband's lead. Ruskin discovered he felt nervous and didn't want to have sex. He started to slip her dress down and stopped. They kissed and went to sleep. You could chalk this up to nerves. Two sheltered virgins and the overwhelming unfamiliarity. But things would blow up when, at the end of a bitter and acrimonious marriage, years later, Effie would seek an annulment on the grounds that the marriage had never been consummated. In a letter to his lawyer, Ruskin seemed to explain his thought process and said he just didn't like what he saw when he undressed her. Quote, It may be thought strange that I could abstain from a woman whom to most people was so attractive, but though her face was beautiful, her person was not formed to excite passion. On the contrary, there were certain circumstances in her person which completely checked it. In the famous work on Victorian marriage called Parallel Lives, Phyllis Rose says, According to Mary Lutons, who has spent years studying the Ruskins' marriage, what disgusted John about Effie's body was probably her pubic hair. She reasons that John had never seen a naked woman in real life and that even representations of the female nude he had seen in art were either censored or highly idealised, like classical statues. He expected, therefore, a smooth, hairless, small-breasted body, essentially a pre-adolescent body, and the signs of sexual maturity on Effie's body may have disconcerted and dismayed him. End quote. There's enough in there for a psychologist to have a field day. Ruskin was later strongly rumoured to be a paedophile, or at least unable to see adult women in sexual light. But then, this was a man who painted himself as St Paul, lived with his parents well beyond the age any Victorian considered decent, never married, and would later have periods of mental instability, claiming to be visited by ghosts and suffering religious mania. He never had sexual relations with anyone of any age, as far as we can tell. 
debate on Ruskin, his sexuality and his mind have raged for over a century, and we are still no closer to drawing firm conclusions. What is crystal clear is that far from being a typical example of a Victorian wedding night, it was seen at the time as absolutely astonishing, and people couldn't understand how Ruskin could have married the stunning Effie and not have had as much sex with her as she'd have let him get away with. Her next husband, the painter Millet, had no such problems. Another suggestion is that far from showing a typical Victorian wedding night gone wrong, it showed the dangers of allowing people to idealise bodies and sexuality based on art, not education or experience. On this view, the problem with Ruskin was not that he didn't like his wife, but that he viewed sex in terms of art, since he didn't have an alternative model. It is a curious musing that modern pornography might be a better introduction to sex than we think, since whilst the behaviours are staged and the objectification involved is problematic, from a biological point of view, the depictions remove all of the veils. So, where does that leave us? Well, it shows the strong currents of sex in Victorian society, the difficulties of 19th century Christianity and sex, and that most Victorians had a lot of sex, and huge numbers enjoyed it immensely, married or not. The astonished reaction of Victorian society to the non-consummation of the Ruskin marriage firmly demonstrates it was a real exception not a typical experience. Well, that's the end of the show for today. I'm pleased to say that we have the fifth anniversary special next month and then the next regular episode on sex in June. Also, patrons, don't forget, check out the uh, Patreon site where the part two of the Dickens murder mystery is up for your listening pleasure. Okay, thanks everyone. Take care and bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee if you want to support the show on patreon there's a link in the show notes or you can go to patreon and search for age of victoria podcast or my name take care and bye for now